Word of our God. And it happened when Jesus was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and the great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that you would, through it, cause us to gaze in awe and wonder at your great salvation and our great King and Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, look around our culture and uh, it's quite shocking probably to many of you, especially, especially the older we get probably or those of you who were my age before some of the things going on today were even a, an imagination in your mind. Uh, we look around and we can be shocked by how sin is celebrated. Uh, we, we could easily look at our culture and easily look at the church around us and use words like delighting in sin, celebrating sin, boasting in sin cherishing sin. Spurgeon used all those words in a sermon on sin over a hundred years ago. And he used another phrase that really uh, caught my attention this last week as he talked about the, the power of how even, even sometimes Christians view their sin. He worded it like this, that we, we love the look of our spiritual leprosy. Isn't that a powerful phrase? That, that our sin, as it were, is this decay, and we think it looks great. It's easy to see how that fits with our culture today. Maybe we need to consider our own hearts to see if in more subtle ways we too, like our culture, celebrate our sins, cherish our sins, look at our sins, and like how the decay looks. Spurgeon is, of course, just picking up on what the Bible is doing 
with leprosy. What God does in his word in terms of looking at leprosy. Leprosy was uh, just a a kind of catch-all for any skin uh, decay issue in Old Testament Israel. That's why you can read Leviticus 13 and 14 and uh, doctors and physicians might say, well, well, uh, this is more than just leprosy because we have this one thing that tends to be referred to as leprosy uh, for the past couple hundred years. But the Bible's not just ignorant and calling things leprosy that aren't. The word leprosy in the ancient world wasn't tied to just that one disease. It was a way of referring to any skin issue that was a decay of the flesh. Now, that could be a very minimal thing. That could sometimes include things that you and I would look at and say, oh, I could really use some medicated ointment. And I'm going to run down the, to the drugstore and get some cream. Or, or the doctor will give you some cream and three days later it's gone. And In fact, Leviticus leaves room for that. That was part of what Leviticus 13 talks about. This decay that's very temporary. But there was also the more intense versions of it that would be with you for all of your life and would result uh, in the, in one sense, the end of your life in a variety of ways. And all of it, God uses as a picture of sin. Not in the sense of saying, this person has leprosy because he sinned. Or this person has leprosy because mom or dad sinned, and so they inherited it. Uh, But rather to say, look how this decay that came into the world with death through sin, look at how it images, presents an outward picture of what we look like inwardly. So these people who had leprosy stood as a visual for all of Israel to remember. You may have perfect skin, but inwardly, this is you. I had a professor, Old Testament professor in college, who because of that, because he had that hindsight that we have of seeing what God was doing with leprosy back then, said, if I was an Old Testament uh, uh, leper... I would see it as the greatest joy to walk around as this image of the gospel. I think that's wrong. It was a curse, wasn't it? It's connected to the fall. But it does point us to the gospel, doesn't it? It points us to the need. It was intended to point us to the results of sin in the world. And so this morning, as we look at this short passage, I want us to consider together what leprosy was to this man, what the culture viewed leprosy as, that God is using it to point to something spiritual as well. And I, I think the, the thing in their culture can be boiled down to kind of three thoughts. They all overlap, so there's going to be a lot of overlap. But three thoughts about what leprosy is in the Bible. First, leprosy consumes. 
whatever variety it is. And there was malignant and there was non-malignant. But in one form or another, it consumes, it consumes the flesh, maybe very temporarily, maybe terminally, but it consumes. And this man clearly in our text was not a man who just had a three-day rash and next week he can be declared clean. This man had a very malignant version, no doubt. It consumes those in the ancient world who had uh, versions of this would have this decay of the flesh spread from digits and they might lose fingers and toes to arms, to legs, to the chest, to the throat. There's recordings of some whose throats decayed so much on the outside that they weren't able to speak or it was painful to speak because their whole throat was tormented by this decay. There is recording of of people who, as their body decayed on the outside, even without x-rays and all of that stuff, they were able to tell the decay was also inward because their bones would just start breaking for no apparent reason, except, of course, that their outside was all decayed. So it wasn't just outward, it was inward as well. There were those who had ulcers form because as the, the body decayed, the blood didn't flow properly. And so you would have bad uh, blood supply to various limbs. Your face, and this sounds more cosmetic, but I, I want you to imagine this actually happening to your closest loved one. Your face would so distort even if it wasn't uh, actually rotting away in front of you because the rest of you was rotting away your face could distort until you looked like a, a lion that, that's the imagery that the ancient world used for it it kind of puffed you into a, a weird misshapen face that looked more like the head of a lion than a man and uh, it, it it consumes it consumes and it leaves, it leaves a great dread. Imagine that first moment seeing just a spot, perhaps on your hand. But there's no known cure. Realize that Leviticus 13 and 14 don't say, and this Levite, this family of Levites, will be specially trained in the cure of leprosy. There's no known cure. And there's no putting you in a hospital to seek treatment. You are cast out. The spread is a dreaded and loathsome thought. Indeed, even if it was uh, very tame, you wouldn't know that until, until the priest was able to examine you, would you? You would see and you would never know. You would never know how far this is going to go when you first see it. It consumes but leprosy consuming isn't just about the individual. It, it consumes all those who come into contact with you in the Levitical code. Now, it didn't always spread. Sometimes it was so uh, malignant and so uh, contagious that merely touching could spread it to the next person. That's why they had such strict rules. But Leviticus makes this clear as well. Even if 
it wasn't going to spread physically to the other person. The fact that it represents uncleanness means that coming into contact with it would make you unclean before God. And so, whether physically or ritually, it consumes all who come into contact with it. Now that leads to an inevitable end then, doesn't it? If the first thing the Bible tells us about leprosy is that it's contagious, the second thing it says is that leprosy is death. It's death. In many cases, quite literally, spreading until you fall into a very painful existence on the ground, unable to do anything and with no one who is able to touch you to help you, and then you die. But also just a living death. That was actually a phrase that was used in some parts of the ancient world about those with leprosy. The living dead. You can also find phrases like the walking dead. Interesting that our culture has taken both of those phrases that were about leprosy and used them in horrific fictional ways in our day. But it was far more horrific then, wasn't it? You are the walking dead. We, we read two verses in Leviticus 13, 45 and 46, that describe three things that you were supposed to do if you had a malignant leprosy. You were to shave your head. You were to cover your mouth. Put a mask on, maybe we could say. And you were to rip all your clothes. Now, there, there's a practical function to all of that. It would assist others in knowing that you were leprous and so help them stay away from you. But as we study the Old Testament, we find it's actually more than that. Ezekiel 24, 17 through 22, and Micah 3, verse 7, just two examples of many, show us what these actions declare. They declare grief of the chief mourner at someone's death. You realize what's being said then in Leviticus 13. If you have leprosy, you now are your own chief mourner. And you are to live your life, perhaps the rest of your life, unless there's healing, miraculous healing that no one can help you with. You are to live your life walking around declaring you are a dead man. You are a dead woman. Family, friends, community, their lives all go on. Yours comes to a halt. You're working on a woodworking project in your, in your, uh, in your workspace. You're painting a, a portrait. You're uh, working on something. You have a shift to fill tomorrow. You have students who need your training. And you don't get the day to go in and clear out your desk. You don't get the chance to go to your home and pack a suitcase. 
You don't get to have that one last feast with your family. You immediately are cast out as a dead person. A dead person. In fact, your very, very existence was to say, there is not joy here. There is only death. I, I think of Spurgeon's comment I began with, his comment that we love the look of our spiritual leprosy, delighting and celebrating and boasting in it. He goes on to comment that we do all these things even as it works death in our life. Because sin's diagnosis, just like malignant leprosy, only has one end, death. And then a third word, and I've already been wrapping this point in, like I said, they all overlap, but leprosy leprosy uh, consumes, it, it is death, but it also separates. It separates, doesn't it? It separates you ceremonially from God. I want to emphasize that ceremonially part. Because I I have no doubt there were many Old Testament uh, saints with leprosy. And what can separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? The New Testament is very clear. Nothing, not even leprosy, could separate them. They no doubt had uh, very strong faith or struggled greatly to retain their faith as they lived by themselves out in the wilderness. But ritually and ceremonially, they are separated from God. They're not allowed to attend corporate worship anymore. They're not allowed to bring sin offerings for atonement or the resulting thank offerings because they've received atonement. They're not allowed to sit down with the priests and enjoy the feasts, the festivities. They can't be a part of the Passover feast or the Feast of Booths or any of the other feasts. They can't join in on times of prayer. Except, of course, if there's a little community of lepers getting together to pray together. And I I suspect that was the case. But you certainly can't go to the tabernacle or the temple And you can't be a part of any covenant renewal ceremonies that might take place every seven years, according to the law. You could not come and hear the benediction of the high priest pronouncing God's blessing on your life. You were cast out of the community. You had to live in the wilderness far from God. And, of course, leprosy separates from others. As we've already noted, you're ripped away from your loved ones, your family. I I was thinking about this because I couldn't find an answer to this, but you're ripped away from your spouse. And I, I wondered, were there ever spouses that chose to move out and live with their leprous loved one? I suspect probably there were especially older couples 
You know, if you have young children, maybe you say, we have to be separated. I, I can't expose the children to this danger. I need to raise them. But I suspect older couples or couples without children may have chosen at times. But you realize what happens when, when you choose that, if you chose that. You were counted as living dead, even if you never caught it. You lived outside the community. You couldn't go and, and spend the night and the day with your loved one and, and then come into the market or come into worship. You were unclean. You were therefore separated from God, even if your flesh was as clean as could be. You were separated from community as well. So it's a separation among family, among friends. The only community you have is what they called the community of the dead. All the lepers making a little commune in the woods, in the wilderness. Uh, later in history, after Christ came, when Christians realized that they could go into these communities, chance their own health without risking their ritual purity, hospitals started forming. One of the first places hospitals formed was leper colonies. But before Christ came, the leper colony was simply called the community of the dead. And no one went to it. No one entered into it. Family, friends, Levites might leave food or provisions on a rock somewhere, leave, and then the leper community could come and get those supplies but no one entered into community with you. No physical contact, unless it's some other decaying flesh. No intimacy. And all of this is emphasized, we read those verses in Leviticus, with your responsibility to yell at the top of your lungs, unclean, If anyone came with inside of you, you were to yell, unclean, don't come near me. Talk about separation. I I, I think I, I was thinking about 2020 and how maybe we might, some of us, be tempted to think we know how that feels, but we don't. Even those of us who got COVID and had really hard weeks and and some in our congregation had very horrible weeks. I, I think of Rich and Deb. Wow, just horrific, wasn't it? But that's only a small, small feel of what this felt like. A small taste that God has granted us so that we might have a slightly better understanding of the horrific nature of leprosy. And he does that. I'm not saying this is why COVID happened. But one of the results is we have that small taste so that we might have a slightly better understanding of what sin does. And what sin is. Sin consumes. It consumes our lives. I want you to think about whatever 
it, maybe it's not even right now. At some point in your life, you've had that secret sin you thought you hid from everyone so well. That sin you cherished and harbored. How many hours did you split, spend planning the sin? Committing the sin? Covering up the sin? How those sins, sins in our lives, they can start small. But sin is never satisfied, is it? When you look at how grotesque people's sins can get, this is something that struck me so powerfully in college when I first started actually doing some counseling with brothers in Christ and I would hear some of the things they they were caught up in with sin and I thought how in the world did you get to this point I always started small and subtle but sin is never satisfied it always consumes grows decays and you get used to it I'm not trying to be mean, and I'm not talking about any of you here. But sort of like you meet someone who just is completely oblivious to their their bad body odor. Right? You've met those people. Maybe it's you. I don't know. I'm not accusing any of you of this. But you meet the person and you think they're unaware. They just don't even realize how bad they smell. Why is that? Well, because over time they got a little dirtier and a little dirtier and they got more and more used to it. Sin is never satisfied. It consumes us. Our time, our energies, our passions, our affections. Why do so many relationships break? I'm overlapping here with separate, I guess, but our our relationships don't break because, well, that friend and I were both too loving, so we had to stop seeing each other. We, we cared too much. We were too gracious to one another. We were too selfless, so we can't be friends anymore. I can't even talk to him anymore. No, that's not why. Sin consumes. And sin separates. Our sin divides us from others. It eats up our affections. It drives wedges. And the New Testament makes clear that our sin doesn't just drive wedges between us and one another. Our sin drives wedges between us and our God. And our sin is death, isn't it? The scripture is very clear about this. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And Ephesians 2 goes on, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. And whence you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all, 
once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by very nature children of wrath. I think one of the most powerful images were given of what sin inevitably does to us in Scripture is found in Proverbs chapter 7. There it's specifically honing in on sexual sins, but his point applies to sin more broadly. Solomon paints for us a picture of sin as going to a house to have an affair. And this is what he, he says. That those who have gone there, that sin has cast down many wounded. And all who were slain by sin were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. All, all who die in trespass and sins were strong men. You see what Solomon's saying? We think that we can handle it a little more than I'll stop. I'm in control. This won't cause these problems. I won't decay. It's not leprosy. It's a a little dandruff. I can handle that with some shampoo. Solomon says all were strong men. And they're all dead. Here's this man. This is, this is how he's been taught to view himself. This is the experience he's had, and I haven't even been able to, to barely touch how he must have felt. He'd no doubt spent his entire, however many years he was leprous, thinking no hope. No hope. And one day he looks up and there's Jesus. The walking dead man before us in our passage cries out, Lord, do you think you could try? No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that, does he? We have no reason to believe that Christ has healed a leper yet. None of the Gospels before this man record a leper. But, but what has he heard of this guy, Jesus? He hasn't yelled this at every person who walked past him. So what has he heard of Jesus? He heard, he heard about demons and that Jesus spoke and they had to listen. He heard about fevers and Jesus rebuked and the fever was gone. He doesn't know if Christ has come to heal lepers, but he cries out, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. You can make me clean. You know, it isn't, it isn't a man crying out to Christ as if he was crying out to a priest 
I think maybe my leprosy has become dormant and I need you to examine it. And maybe you can declare me clean. That's the most Leviticus 14 said a priest could do, isn't it? You think it's become dormant. It's not growing. It's not extending. It's no longer malignant. Have a priest look at it. But that's not what he's crying out to Christ for. He's not looking for a mere priestly absolution from someone who isn't a priest anyway. You know, the great high priest of his day, none of the high priests of his day were really that great, but the high priest of his day, if he had been walking down the road, what would this man have been required to say to him? Unclean. Don't come near me. Do you realize what he says to Jesus is the exact opposite of what the law would require him to say to a high priest. This is faith. This is a man who understands that Jesus is no mere man. Because instead of saying, Jesus, stay away, I'm unclean, he says, come near. Let your cleanness rub off on me. If you are willing, that's how clean you are. You can make me clean. Now again, everything has been Jesus rebuking, saying, and things happen. This man doesn't seem to look for anything more than that, does he? But do you see the beauty of the gospel here in our Savior? who could have rebuked the leprosy and it would leave. But what does he do? He steps near. And the first physical contact this man has probably had in years is the physical contact he will remember for all eternity. Jesus touches him. Moses would say, anyone who touched that man is now unclean. Christ touches him and says, I am willing. And far from becoming unclean, Christ makes him clean. shouldn't surprise us because Christ declares and we're familiar with him saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord of life. The God of creation who was in the beginning cannot be tainted by sin. And he has the power in his righteousness to cleanse to the uttermost. And that's what we see here. How does Christ do this? I think there's this wonderful little subtle hint that Luke throws into this passage. Because notice what Luke says at the end of this. 
He says in verse 16, so Jesus himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. That man went home to community, to fellowship, to the tabernacle. But Christ removed himself into the wilderness. Now, it wasn't because he had become tainted. But Luke records Christ's solitary devotion in such a way that would cause us to gaze ahead and anticipate what the author of Hebrews says very clearly to us. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Think of what we've read in Leviticus this morning when the leprosy finally was dormant or just gone. How did the priest atone? The first step, this is multi-stage, isn't it? But what's the first step? It's a miniature version of the Day of Atonement. Remember the Day of Atonement, two goats, one slain, the other covered in its blood, thrown out into the wilderness. What happens if you're a leper and you come to the priest out in the wilderness? Really, the priest comes out to you in the wilderness. What, it, what happens? Someone else, you can't supply it. Someone else has to get you the two birds. But what happens to the two birds? It's atonement in miniature. One dies. The other is covered in its blood. And that one is released out into the wilderness to take your place far from God and man. On the Day of Atonement, that goat that went out there, it was clear that its place far from God and man was a place where any domesticated goat would die and quickly devoured by beasts in your place. Hebrews 13 is saying Christ was dragged outside of Jerusalem to a hill, condemned to die on the cross. He offered himself the sacrifice for our atonement so that we would not be driven into the wilderness away from God, but rather drawn out of the wilderness into the presence of God. In our place, condemned. In our place, dying outside the gate. In our place, he who was pure, righteous, holy, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the tree. Do you harbor leprosy in your heart? Spiritual leprosy. I actually am asking that question not only of any who have never believed in the Lord Jesus, but but also of all you who have believed in the Lord Jesus. Are there sins that you harbor and cherish 
and love the look of in secret. Perhaps you fear that these sins are so great they can never be removed from you. Anger and wrath, you don't know how to get rid of it. The root of bitterness, doubts, addictions of a variety of types, gossip, or those other things so dangerous in the church, pride and perfectionism. Spurgeon says, nothing is too hard, no one too unclean for the Lord. Surely that's what this passage says. None too unclean that Christ cannot cleanse you. Christ is not willing to be an almost savior. That's not how he works. He is willing to the fullest extent to save all those who believe. Or as we just sang before the sermon of all those who asked him, he refused none. Thanks, Peter.